Hi there. My name is Michael Marvash, and this is The Dead Man's Forest, a weekly conversation where we talk about what it means to be fully human, and through that conversation, in fact, participate in being fully human. I'm sitting in a new forest today, the physical forest that I sit in when I come up to the mountain. The place where I recorded previous conversations has started to get very busy, and so I had to search for a new place, and this place has its own character. It, it, the trees are younger, and so it's brighter. The forest floor is drier and less full of plants. And so who knows what ways that may color the conversation that happens here. But remember, the dead man's forest is not the physical forest that I'm sitting in. The dead man's forest is the space, the mental and emotional space in which the conversation happens. And it comes from the idea that each of us has within us wisdom and knowledge based on the experiences that we've had in our lives. And that if we don't share, if we don't share that wisdom and knowledge, we are keeping a sort of vibrant life that's unique to us. We're keeping it inside. We're keeping it in our own heads and in our own hearts, either because of fear that it will be rejected or because of selfishness that the lessons that we've learned, the wisdom that we've gained is only for us. We come to the Dead Man's Forest to share what we have learned so far in our lives. Last week, I talked about this new theory of emotions, that emotions aren't a reaction to the world around us, like we think they are, like it feels like they are. Emotions aren't something that happens in our body in response to the world around us. But instead, emotions are something that happens as a result of the way we conceive of the world around us. So emotions are actually shaping the way that we feel about the world instead of the other way around. Last week I said this theory was challenging to me because it seemed to devalue or discount an experience that we have as human beings. And one of the potential dangers that I see in the rise of science as the way by which we understand the world is that it has no way of getting inside us. It, it can't talk about what an experience is like because an experience is not something that can be tested. It's only something that can be lived. And my fear is that science will someday remove all of the magic from existing, or, or it will cause people to forget that there is a magic to existing, that the fact that anything exists, that I'm sitting in a forest, is quite 
miraculous. It causes us to ask big questions like where did it come from and why is it here? And, and perhaps those questions have answers and perhaps they don't. But as I'll talk about later in today's conversation, asking the questions is participating in being human. Another thing that I talked about last week was certainty and doubt. As I thought about those more this week, I, I reflected on how we as human beings can never know perhaps anything. Perhaps there's nothing we can truly know for certain. And that when acts of great evil are committed, that they are always done by a person who is certain that their course is right. And so perhaps part of evil, if it exists, is inappropriate certainty. But I had a few conversations this week about that notion about good and evil, whether or not they exist or whether they're human constructs. And I think they probably don't exist because we always define them in the context of a human being. But that doesn't mean that they're not useful ideas for us to use to move through the world that we find ourselves in, part of which is undeniably made by and for human beings. A simple idea that I think I missed and that a friend pointed out to me is a very common idea in today's world where we, we are in the process of embracing the feminist movement and the Black Lives Matter movement and, and movements that are really about injustices that are built into the fabric of the society that we have made. And, and that idea is consent, is that doing something to someone without their consent is evil. The examples I gave last week were, were lynching or genocide or murder. All of those acts we would call evil, perhaps in part because they cause a death or many deaths, but more perhaps because they cause those deaths without the consent of the people who are killed. One of the reasons I miss that or the reasons I struggle with it is because there are many stories of cultures whose members gladly participate in rituals that we would consider barbaric in the, the ritual sacrifice of large numbers of people. And that seems so terrible to us in our, in what we like to think of as our modern civilized culture, even though it is in no way more civilized than anyone else's. But if we look at it through the lens of consent, 
through the lens of, I give permission for this thing to be done or for this thing to be done to me. Do you give consent for me to do this thing to you? Then perhaps, perhaps in that world we can reduce or maybe even eliminate evil. And it also gives us a, an easy way to check our certainty. I'm certain that this is right. Do I have your consent? It's, it's a way to build that appropriate doubt into each moment, into each decision that we make. I've been thinking a lot over the past week about how to be fully human, about what it means to be fully human. And I'm not sure that question is even one that makes sense. Can we be anything other than fully human? I was at a community center the other day and a man came out with a a large snake, a boa constrictor or a python, I can't remember what he said it was, wrapped around his neck. He was there to show it to some kids. He has a reptile rescue in the area. And I always played with snakes with when I was a kid, and I liked them a lot. And so I went over and asked if I could hold it and, you know, put it on my shoulders. And it was a big, heavy snake, and it, the way it its scales felt so dry and yet so smooth and slippery at the same time was a really satisfying feeling. But the point, the reason I bring this story up is because that snake, we were, we were outside the building, it was a sunny day and we were standing on cement. The cement had been out in the sun for a while and you could feel the heat radiating up from the cement. And the snake kept trying to slither down off my shoulders. It wanted nothing more than to get to that cement and just lay there and warm up and relax. And looking at a creature like that snake, would you even think to ask the question, is that snake being fully snake? How can this snake be more fully snake? It's just a silly, almost nonsense question. Maybe it is a fully nonsense question. <laughs> And yet we ask it of ourselves all the time, am I being fully human? Is that person being fully human? How can we be fully human? And, and it doesn't feel like a nonsense question, does it? I had some conversations about this over the course of the weekend. There is this idea that uh, any animal, any, any living thing, is automatically simply by the fact that it exists and does what it does, is meeting its full potential. That snake is the snakiest snake that it could possibly be. It, it, has, it is the ideal snake. What, what else could it be? It doesn't have the, the choice or the capacity to be anything other than the perfect snake. It's the same as these trees around me. They're ideal trees. They're the way they are. And they have no shame or doubts or second guessing about that. They simply have done what it is that they do exactly as they were designed to do it. And yet we as humans feel that we are not that way, don't we? 
there's something broken in us that we need to do certain things or think certain things in order to be the ideal versions of ourselves and perhaps that's the case perhaps that's the the gift and the curse of what it means to be human we will never reach our full potential because every time we get better we realize we can get still better we can improve ourselves more our potential seems limitless as far as we're able to see from you know this this place in time that we find ourselves and yet in a funny way i think asking that question how can i be fully human how can i reach my full potential is a thing that human beings do the same way that snake wanted to get to the warm rock, the same way the trees grow up to the sky. We ask questions as human beings. And even though we don't necessarily know the answers all the time, I think it must be the asking that helps us participate fully in being what what it is that we are and that's that has given me a new a renewed interest and a new perspective on the work that is done in the dead man's forest i said at the beginning of the episode that dead man's forest is a conversation where we both ask what it means to be fully human and simultaneously, through that asking, participate in being fully human. And so it's a very special conversation. It's much windier in this part of the forest than in my old place. I think I think it's appropriate. I think there is a life to wind. It's like the breath of the earth. And breathing is one way that we know that we are alive. There is one more reason that I thought of that I that it's so important to me to participate in this conversation. And it's because we live in a world that has been given to us. The world that we live in is a gift and it was created for us in part by the people who came before us. They worked to build society as best they could. It was the work of a great many people over a very long period of time that gave us all of the tools that we use on a daily basis that gave us the tool of language and gave us art, gave us the, the very lenses by which we look through the world, the, the emotional concepts, as I talked about early, earlier. Those were created and developed by people in the past. 
and we are inheritors of of that great work that they have done and and i feel that one of the goals of that work is to allow us to be more fully human all the time to continue to reach higher and higher potentials and as the inheritor of that gift i feel an obligation to continue to participate in that process not only for myself but also for those who come after me because i like those people who came before me i am now participating in creating the world that those who come after me will inherit i am now creating the gift for the future and and this is my gift to be fully human and to wrestle with what that means and to have that conversation with you to make that connection with you thank you so much for being here with me and doing that with me we are a part of a very special thing not just those of us who participate in these conversations from the dead man's forest but all of us who are inheritors of the world in which we live and who are working to make the gift of that world better for the future thank you one of the questions that was asked of me this week when i was having a conversation was who are you who are you and it was couched in the context of so often when we meet people we ask two questions what's your name and what do you do we ask those questions because they're easy to answer and they give us opportunities initial opportunities to make connections with people but that question who are you is hard to answer isn't it a couple possible answers that occurred to me and about which i will certainly think more over the course of the coming week are that we are a collection of all of the experiences that we've had and the gifts that we've been given from the world that we live in that we have developed habits ways of doing things that that worked for us in the past and so that we reasonably assume will continue to work for us in the future we tend to think of people as as if they have personalities but research is now suggesting that that our personalities are nothing more than or little more perhaps maybe not nothing more or little more than the collection of habits that we've learned in our past and we have available to us a much wider range of behaviors than we tend to exhibit on a regular basis perhaps one thing that we are is a is a collection of habits and another thing that we are perhaps is a collection of thoughts that we've had our thoughts whether conscious or not are the way by which we interact with the world of ideas that we find ourselves in our thoughts are the way that we develop those habits in the first place again not always consciously and so to 
our life has followed a path that is partly in our control and partly under our control. We made choices. We made choices to be with the people that we are with. We made choices to make friends with the people we made friends with. We made choices to study what we studied in school. We made choices to accept the jobs that we've accepted. And yet, those choices were not infinite. We move forward through the world, through time, from the past to the future, and we bump into things, <laughs> opportunities arise, and we choose to accept some of them, to embrace some of them, and to keep others at a distance. And so our lives are a collection of the choices that we've made, the thoughts that we had, and the habits that we formed. And perhaps one more thing, based on this new research or, or this new theory of emotions, we're a collection of the concepts that we've learned. And those have been entirely, I think, given to us by our parents, by our society, by the, as I've said before, by the world that came before, the civilization of the past. The way that we feel, the way that we look at the world has been given to us. And yet, this new theory suggests to us that once you're aware of that, you have the ability to develop new concepts. In that episode of Invisibilia that I mentioned last week, they talk about an anthropologist who went to live with this tribe of people who felt this emotion called legate. And it is not an emotion that we know in our Western civilization. You've never felt it. You don't know what it is. And this anthropologist talked about how he could see that emotion in those people and could feel the first glimmerings of it, but it took years and years and years for him to fully feel what those people felt and what those people presumably still feel on a regular basis, that, that emotion of legate. And so it seems reasonable to assume that just as language has changed over the course of many hundreds and thousands of years, so too the emotional landscape of a people will change. So that in 100, 200, 500 years, those who come after us will have a different set of emotional concepts and perhaps even other concepts, visual concepts, since we also talked about vision working the same way. And they will literally, literally, inhabit a different world than we do now because both things seem to be true both that the world is something that happens to us the world is something as i said before that we bump into that we are not fully in control of but more and more research suggests that the world is also something that we create inside of our heads we have some measure of control over the kinds of experiences that we have, over the way that we experience things based on the concepts that we have learned, whether or not we were aware of the learning. I think that's a good stopping point for today. Some ideas to roll around, to examine from a few different sides, to talk about with other people in the coming week. 
and to bring back next week in the Dead Man's Forest. Thanks for listening. If you have anything you'd like to say, please reach out to us on Twitter at Dead Man's Forest One, or go to our website, deadmansforest.org, and tell us what you're thinking. Thank you. Truly, thank you. Bye-bye.